the, the topic that we've been exploring, the way we described it, start off with what we call freedom from choice. That that the real, the real access to to Torah begins almost with a realization of the fact there's a reality and not a choice. It's freedom from choice, and the difficulty is is not so much in the should I or shouldn't I do it, but how do I manage to do it? The nature of the world in terms of its morality is fickle and changes from generation to generation. And depending on the dominant moods and the the back and forth of cultural shifts, so values change the whole time. Values that were cherished 200 years ago are now completely extinct. And values which are cherished maybe a thousand years are back in fashion. So the nature of, of the external world and the value system that it, that it subscribes to is, is fickle and is dependent on, on the moods of the times. And of course, there's many complex and varied factors which contribute to it. The, the presentation of Torah is it's a solid and consistent entity. The values that we had and the texts that we study and the kind of life that we seek to embody is the same now as it was from the founding of a nation. The same values that Avram taught his son Yitzchak, taught his son Yaakov, taught his twelve sons and through the um, through the t- crucible of Egypt and then through redemption to the giving of the Torah are the same values that we seek to embody in our daily lives so, so far away in space and time today. Which means that what we're trying to do is we're trying to spearhead as call ourselves empowered Jews because we've been given the privilege to have an access to a tradition which to the vast majority of the Jewish people is a complete non-starter. The vast majority of Jewish people have no even remote accessibility to, to what we have the privilege to, to study and understand. And that empowerment, that responsibility has to move inwards, which means that the goal of Torah is not to become learned in the precepts that Judaism preaches about, but it's to become given good example from the Gomorrah. The Gomorrah mocks the Babylonians, Jews in Babylon, that says, Hani bavloi tipshoi, the Gomorrah actually in the end of Marcus. Hani bavloi tipshoi, these foolish Babylonians. Well, I mean, if there's one handy, we're learning Marcus, so I thought there may just be one like on hand and then I could... Okay. So, the Gemara comments on these Bavloi that they're foolish. Why are they foolish? Because when a Sefer Torah comes into the room, they all stand. 
But when a Talmud Chacham walks into the room, a person that's well versed in Torah, they don't stand. So the Gemara says, the Talmud Chacham is more Torah than the Sefer Torah. Because the Talmud Chacham is a living, breathing generator of Torah. He's the one that tells you when it says in the Torah, you should get lashed 40 lashes, that it means 39. In other words, he has a dynamic component that the text ink on parchment does not. So really, he's a more alive Sefer Torah. Very often in my yeshiva career, the theme would be uh, one spoken about often in Musa Shirim. And the way it would be said in Yiddish, which is genuinely the language of the delivery of the Musa Shmuzim, was a mensch darf sein a lebedikah sefer Torah. Verstehst? A person has to become a living sefer Torah. Not that you have to become a person that knows a lot about Torah. Just as you need to stand up for a Talmud Chochem, you do not need to stand up for a Barilan disc that walks into the room. There's a, there's a computer program called Barilan and it's got enormous amounts of Torah information on it. Oh. But you don't have to stand up for the disc, but the disc has got all the Torah in it. Yes, it's got the information of the Torah, but the information of the Torah is not what the Torah is about. The, the, the Torah, and, and I think this is a really important point to make, the Torah is not a wisdom which informs us. The Balatanya and the Nefesh Achaim overlap when they say this idea. The Nefesh Achaim goes into extreme length to discuss what Torah is. But you, you hear out from between the lines of what he says that there's something about Torah which is it's not the information is the is a medium that's used to convey a particular energy force. Because you have numerous Midrashim and other Chazalim which describe things like that the Torah preceded the world. And it doesn't only mean in terms of time, before and after, it also means in terms of causality. That the causality of the creation of the world was, was the first cause, was Torah. And everything was a result of Torah. In other words, not that Torah is something that's appended to, attached to the world. But Torah is the, the energy, the components, the spiritual molecular structure of the world around us. And then it's created a symbiotic, symbiotic relationship whereby just as a, a router, a router, a router is able to send out a signal and depending on the strength of the signal, your computer can receive it and then connect and then there can be a transmission that takes place. If you're too far away from the router so then you don't, you don't pick it up, when you're close and the signal is strong, so then you can speedily transfer enormous amounts of information. So there's essentially two origins that the Torah has, or two points. There's the Torah, which is called the Torah upon high, which is, which is the energy force that makes creation. And there's a Torah which is studied below. Now when the Torah is studied below, what it does is, is 
it creates it creates a connection to the Torah above. And the deeper, the more effort that goes into the amount of brain power that you spend exerting yourself in trying to fathom it, it creates, it, it strengthens the signal between the primordial Torah and the Torah inside of you until it's like the rooter gets trumped up in terms of the power of its transmission. How, what kind of signal it transmits. And as that power becomes closer and closer, so it's not only that there's an energy that's generated which impacts the person learning, but in fact, in fact, the whole world benefits from the influx of energy into the cosmos. To the degree to which the Medrash says, why when it describes in the Loshan of the Pasuk, when the Torah actually writes about, which we say every night, Friday night, it's the only day in the story of, the, of Genesis, of the creation, Alex, that the definite article is used before the day. This sixth day. It says fifth day, fourth day. It says this sixth day. And the major says that sixth day is a veiled reference to the sixth day of Sivan. And the Medrash says that Akash made a condition with the creation. If the Jews receive the Torah, then the world will have continuity. And if they don't, it will return to its state of what's called Tovah of Desolation. So... So the um, the Nefesh Achaim says that he makes an extrapolation from this. He says that the, the the study of Torah is not it's not to become wise and to become well versed in a system of laws and 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 precepts. It's to continue. And that's why there's there's also numerous Chazalim which describe a person learning as a as a partner in the creation of the world. Because, and I, I think it's, it's a deep concept, and, and let me attempt to articulate it. The way we perceive the Torah is a... To give you a little bit of a bizarre analogy... If we use Star Trek, which I agree is a slightly outdated analogy, but let's for a moment use Star Trek and how Mr. Scotty was beamed up. So in Star Trek, they used to beam up people by, I'm not quite sure how it worked, but the person used to be standing in a small semicircular area and then his body kind of disappeared and reappeared elsewhere. Now, let's use it as an analogy for the idea of what happened when his body dissolved and then reappeared somewhere else. Where was his body in the interim? So, I would like to express the fact that in the interim, his body was in the world of ideas. It still existed, but it was in the world of ideas, and it became tangible when he reached his new destination. Or as follows. Before we get on to the nature of spirituality, let's start off with the nature of the movement from the conceptual to the concrete. And then you can say that's a little bit like a soul and a body, and that will help us to maybe grasp what the concretization of the Torah is, how the Torah can act as an energy force. 
don't know if we've done this exercise before, we may have, but I think it's a good way of illustrating it. If I say to you, Yishayim, what is a more solid reality? A more... Um, when I say solid reality, I mean a longer lasting, a more permanent structure. What's a more permanent structure? The table or the idea, the plan of the table that the carpenter has in his head? Why? Coming to the room, I can take an axe and I can break the table. If the idea is in his head, he'll make a new table. Exactly the same. So you can't break you can't break the idea, you can break the table. Like the idea is true even if the person who has the idea passes on, the idea still exists. So you can't you can't break the idea. The only way to break an idea is to find a fallacy within it. In other words, a true idea is the most indestructible thing that there is. Or, better phrased, a true idea is reality itself. Much more than the physical representation of the idea, which is a perishable. So, ironically, we all resonate with the fact that reality is an abstract notion. In the true sense. To go from there to understanding the nature of Torah is a lot easier. What is Torah? Torah is an abstract reality. How does that reality manifest? Well, just like the table manifests in wood and metal, that's not the table. That's a manifestation of the table. That's how you express the table. The table essentially is the idea. It takes on the form in this world because it needs to. The Torah is the same idea. That there's, an, there's a higher Torah, a loftier Torah. When the Torah becomes, enters into this world, it takes on the form. It takes on the form of words. It takes on the form of practices. It takes on the form of concepts. But there's a higher Torah which is above all of that. And that's the Torah that energizes, that gives way to the creation of reality. Now what happens is, this is the connection. When we occupy ourselves of trying to plumb the depths of that Torah, the deeper we go, the closer we get to the original source. Of course, we're restricted in how far we get because we are still bound by the limitations of our minds. But we're able to, through accessing, and this is a big Kiddush that the Balatanya says, by accessing the concept, we're able to use that as a clee to contain the essential light that is contained within the Torah. Call it the energy force. So actually when you grasp the idea, you're not only grasping the idea. That idea now acts as a cup that contains what the Torah is. The Torah is not the idea. The idea is the encasement of the Torah. But how does the, how does the energy of the Torah get inside of me? I need a method of getting it inside of me. The way it gets inside of me is by deeply fathoming it. So now it becomes integrated, becomes part of me. And what happens is, not that now I know more information. 
Now that I know that information, the light that the information contained is now within me. Now, from an experiential perspective, I'm not saying that that's something that we can all, at the outset, feel. But there's definitely, when a person develops an awareness, you can start to, you can start to, you can start to, the, 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 let's put it this way. There's a famous story about Reb Noach Weinberg, Oliver Shalom, which everyone knows. A man came to him and said, disillusioned. He'd been to the Western Wall. He'd arrived there. He stood in front of it. And you know what he felt? Nothing. Nothing. So he said, Rabbi, I went to the Western Wall and I did not see any level or experience any kind of sanctity. To which Reb Noach Weinberg replied, and he said, well, did you see a stick?" So he said, I beg your pardon? He said, well, did you see a stick?" He said, well, I have no idea if I saw a stick or not. He says, well, why not? So he says, because I don't know what a stick is. So he says, oh, you mean if you don't know what it is, you can't know if you saw it or not? He said, yes. He said, oh, okay. <laughs> Meaning that we first of all have to develop an awareness of what we're trying to find. What we're trying to find. If we haven't developed the refinement and the subtlety of perception to experience what Kedusha feels like, so we may be experiencing it all day long, we just may not be aware of it. There are definitely many levels and components of ourselves that we're oblivious to. I'm sure we've all had experiences when just through discussions you suddenly realize that a feeling that you'd felt perhaps sometimes for years you'd be completely unaware of and then someone engages you in a discussion and something prompts you and you say oh yes that's, you know I've never put my finger on it but I've been feeling like that for, for a long time but until you actually pointed out you had that experience but you didn't know how to label it you couldn't see it you couldn't describe it once you've had that experience now you know you're aware of it the whole time I found with myself a lot of this, the ability to, to become aware of very subtle movements in experiencing moods, emotional moods, and even subtle spiritual variations is a result of, of training oneself to move slowly. Now obviously for me, <laughs> it's not a hard thing for me to do. I generally do move slowly, but when I find, when I practice Tai Chi, and in Tai Chi, the idea behind it is, if you want to grasp the movement, you can't do it fast, because you'll miss out the hundreds of stages that are involved in the movement of a single limb. But when you slow down the movement, you're able to trace it, and then you're able to feel you, you, you almost start to feel a whole new range. You never knew when you slightly twisted your hand how your middle finger felt. Because when you go like that, it's too quick. But when you become deeply aware of your physical movements, you become deeply engaged in physical movements, then you can start to question emotional movements. What kind of shift happened in the last five minutes in my emotions? Well, let me ask myself a basic question. And when we ask ourselves this question, we'll see perhaps how many of us, certainly myself, 
are emotionally disengaged. What's my predominant mood right now? So we may be able to say, I'm okay. What is that? What is my okay made up of? Are you happy? Yeah, I'm quite happy. Are you sad? Not really. Are you angry? No. So what are you? I'm okay. A little bit excited. Uh, hey? A little bit excited. <laughs> <this> idea. <laughs> Mild excitement. That's already like quite a big, <laughs> deep level of self-awareness. Mild excitement over the idea. So, we experience extreme emotions. We're very aware of when we are furious. We're aware when you're very calm. But all those subtle transition moments, don't know if we pick them up. Now, in terms of, in terms of subtlety, so the most overt, the, the most um, concrete of things that we can experience are, are, is our body. The emotions are much harder to grasp. And spiritual movements are the most loftiest and therefore, in a certain way, they're the hardest to, to sniff out the difference between a moment of Kedusha and a moment of Tumah. Again, when it's excessive, heightened moments of Kedusha, a person can feel elevated maybe uh, at, on, on a Friday night after se- or on a Yom Kippur on a Rosh Hashanah. But what about the rest of the year? Jacob. I don't know if you can make a good comparison between you know, Kedusha and emotions. Because emotions are rooted in intellect. Whereas Kedusha isn't. Okay, again, I, I'm not quite sure what model you're working with. I, anything you feel is based on something that you think. Well, when I said I'm not quite sure what model you're working with, I wasn't actually going to ask you to explain the model you're working with. I was going to like, basically push it off and uh, then fine. provide you with the model. But I mean, if you do oh, want to... Yeah, uh, we can use your... Uh, fo- would you like us to explore your faulted model for a moment? Now, the, 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 mo- the, model, the model that I... The way... You know, presenting it from, let's say, the, the anatomy of the internal being described in this forum locates three different levels of experience which parallel to thought, speech and action which parallel to what's called neshama, ruach and nefesh neshama being the highest level of thought ruach being the level of speech and nefesh being the level of action so there's actually a hierarchy. So that's, that's a model I'm using that the most concrete is nefesh action. Slightly above that is speech. And the, the least concrete is thought. Also in terms of relationship to the self, there's also that hierarchy. The closest thing to me are my thoughts. The interim is my speech. And the furthest thing away from me are my actions. They can actually literally leave me. I can do something and it stays where it is and I move and it's still there. My actions can leave an imprint. Okay, be patient. Just the initial construction of this, of this structure. So now, those three levels, those three levels of thought, speech and action on the Shama Ruach and Nefesh, um, have a relationship between them which
has two separate channels, two two parallel what the what the Balatanya calls the two the two souls. Each soul has the two souls that a person possesses within him. And each of those souls has both thought, speech and action. And there's a relationship in terms of a structural analysis of how this the thought relates to the speech, which relates to the action. Speech is also a synonym for emotions. Speech becomes a synonym for emotions, which becomes a synonym for heart. Thought becomes a synonym for head. Head and heart. Head, heart, body. Both souls that we possess exist within us and they can exist parallel to one another to the degree that a person can opt to live in one system of soul and exclude the other one. Person can live in what's called the animal soul, the nefesh Bahamis, and not have any experience of the nefesh Lokis, the godly soul. Person can live in the nefesh Lokis and have no experience of the nefesh Bahamis. In other words, each one is a system which can function independently. Now that needs to be qualified because it's not absolutely accurate. Okay? Now, in terms of those two systems, the way they relate to thought and emotion in terms of causality, which comes first and second and what causes, which one causes the other, the general rule is as follows. When operating in the world of the godly soul, the origin of emotion is in thought. Thought then brings down to feelings Feelings then lead to actions. In the animal soul, the causality doesn't go in that direction. Rather, it begins with emotions. Emotions create thoughts. Thoughts then create more emotions, which then create actions. So in the Nefesh Abahamis, the the receptacle for the person's mental activity is actually starts off at the experiential level which then generates an entire mental construct Bahamis meaning as well let's give an example to the two different things before we then go and further question this model and your own for example Nefesh Bahamis without going into detail of all its aspects but call it reactive instinctive you come to me and you say, Siegel, I must say, I've been exposed to many sherim, but yours strike me as the most ill-organized and boring. All of a sudden, I feel, I feel an emotional rage. Then I start to think, who does this petito think he is? The guy, Poshid, he's just walked off the boat. He's as, he's as from as as a Filipino dolphin and now he's giving and then and then boom it goes back into the emotions and before I know it before I know it I'm hurling abuse at you or lifting you up and twirling you around in the sky whereas whereas the it has to be listen to this Jacob it, ha, it has to be it has to be that the Nefesh starts off with thought because it has to start off with a place above this world. Its origin is in the world of the spirit. Its origin is in the world of the spirit. So it can't glean inspiration from the world of the tangible and the concrete because that's not its place of belonging. 
So what happens is, a person thinks about an idea. He thinks about the idea of after Echa He becomes enraptured with the notion of what it means to give to another. That then brings about a feeling of, I want to give Yaakov Mordechai a warm pat on his back, which then leads to the warm pat on his back. So use the example you did, for, just, just for clarification's sake, about someone insulting you. According to the... So this is what happens. The Balatanya describes the pattern. So what happens? Someone insults you. So the Nefesh of Bahamis, let's say, reacts. The person is not Sadiq Gomer. The person is at Sadiq Gomer. No reaction. Embrace the person. The person is not Bainoini. He reacts. The heart shoots up to the head. Venomous thoughts. The Nefesh Elokis in the head doesn't allow those thoughts to penetrate. It says those things are irrelevant. They don't, they, they, they're not... From, from, the, from, the from the heart, and the Bahamis sends up a message to the head. In the head, the Nefesh Elokis bars entrance to the false thoughts. I did mention both. Like this. Like this. No, you say in both, they both hear the emotion first. Are you saying they both hear the emotion first? Someone has abuse in you. According to the Bahamis, it goes emotion, head, emotion. So let's, yeah? let, 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 so let's, let's, see. let's take Russia. Tzadik Beinoini. Russia has emotion, goes to his head, thinks horrible thoughts, feels horrible feelings, does horrible deeds. He's only, he's, he doesn't have a Nefeshulokis. The Nefeshulokis is not there. He's a Russia. Tzadik. Tzadik. He's only got a Nefeshulokis. He has angry words, just feels love and compassion for the person that's hurling abuse at him. He has it. He has it in his heart, but it, because he's he's. You always you always claim that emotion first. But the emotion doesn't form the origin of the impact that it has. Because a tzaddik is rooted in a place of love and chesed, which starts off in the higher worlds, so when the external stimulus enters into his sensory perceptors, call it the heart, so the intellectual ruling of the head over the heart sees it through the head not through the heart how is it possible because we, we process everything through our minds everything is processed unfortunately we have now run out of time so we'll have to explore this idea further on Thursday thank you